you can imagine you can go into the platform, you can put in some basic information about your project, and you can instantly see tens of different module options and compare them in a really comprehensive way. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to take this market right now, which is really opaque to both the buyers and sellers and make it much more transparent so that better decisions can be made with more confidence, you know, yielding more outcomes. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast is Schwerd Consulting. Schwerd Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, owner's representation, and technical consulting in all areas of solar, photovoltaics, and energy storage for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. At Schwerd Consulting, they like to say, we know solar, we just don't do solar. What sets them apart is their 100% focus on solar, while having an extensive background in building and utility engineering and understanding the business of our clients, where they're involved with the trends, technologies, vendors, policies, utilities, codes, and financial considerations for the industry. Therefore, value add for them is not just a slogan, it's what they practice in order to have a loyal customer base and gain trust. Short Consulting has been in business for nine years and has provided services for approximately one gigawatt of PV across over 800 sites and 17 states plus the Caribbean. Let Schwerd Consulting take the burden off you and bring ease and expertise in all areas of engineering and design or help you navigate the technical world of solar. If you're interested in learning more about Schwerd Consulting, you call them at 215-219-6718. That's 215-219-6718 or email to admin at schwerdconsulting.com. Schwerd Consulting's website is www.schwerd.com. Consulting.com. We'll also have that in the notes of the podcast. I've known Steve for 15 years. Him and his team does an amazing job with their clients, and I appreciate him supporting the podcast. And he's also been on several episodes of the Solar Maverick podcast. So definitely check it out through our catalog. And thank you for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited on this episode to have Mike Hall. He's been in the solar industry for now over two decades, first as the CEO of Borrego, a leading EPC and O&M provider, and most recently, he launched Anza with his brother Aaron in 2022. If you're not familiar with Anza, Anza was created from the urgent need to accelerate and improve the solar and energy storage procurement, a financial linchpin in most projects that has been stuck in the dark ages. And in just one year, it's been amazing what Anza's been able to do, powering 13 gigawatts across over 400 solar projects and 11 gigawatts across 50 plus storage projects. It's great, Mike, to have you on the podcast, you and your brother, the original Solar Maverick. So (laughs) you guys making time, you know, obviously most of us who've been in the solar industry for a very long time know Borrego and it's amazing what you were able to do with that company. And I'm excited because I really think there's a huge opportunity with Anza. So it would be great, Mike, if you could maybe give a brief introduction of yourself and your prior background and what you're working on with Anza Renewables. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be here likewise and to have this conversation, talk about what we're doing in Anza and history. And I won't claim to be the original Solar Maverick, but I think we were there near the start of, let's call it Solar 2.0 with Solar 1.0 being like the 
small off-grid systems in the 80s. I started in the industry back in 2002. My brother had refounded Borrego and we started Borrego as a real mom and pa garage business. And we were doing the only thing there was to do back then which was residential solar rooftops. And so we were going around. It was a very small company funded on $40,000 and doing two and a half kilowatt systems on friends and family's roof. And we grew it from there. And the Borrego journey was a fun and exciting one. And we rolled the solar coaster and I think probably helped build the solar coaster. Frankly, we rode it up and down for a couple of decades, had more successes than failures, although, you know, we had things that didn't work too. But over that time, we really did pretty much everything there is to do in downstream solar and storage. So we started in the installation and we eventually built the commercial utility scale EPC. We had a third-party operation and maintenance business. And then we got into development, greenfield development of community solar and small utility scale projects. We started as a developer and an IPP, eventually just became a developer. And that business was very successful. And ultimately we did a spin out and sale of that business. And now that's an independent company called New Leaf Energy. Right now, I left Borrego formally this year, although I'm still on the board to run another spin out we did, which is now an independent company called Anza. And yeah, like you said, Anza, we're entirely focused on helping made in large scale IPPs, you know, companies that are buying megawatts to tens of megawatts to hundreds of megawatts or megawatt hours of PV and energy storage get to more optimal procurement outcomes. We think there's optimal procurement outcomes means more project profits. It means less risk. It means better counterparties and contracts. And we just saw that there were tremendous issues with the way procurement was being done and that we have learned a lot in our experiences at Borrego that we thought the entire market could benefit from. I mean, it's amazing what your platform is able to do and basically simplify the process for people who are making the purchasing decisions within the IPP and also give them a lot more range of options. Can you talk about like maybe give an example of like what are the benefits of your customer by using your platform? Right. So we're a tool a platform and a service for procurement teams at IPPs. That's what we do. We're not a middleman. We're not a distributor. We exist to help procurement teams and IPPs get to better outcomes. And so there are a few things we do. Right now, you're a procurement team. You're trying to go out and get, you need to run a 100 megawatt procurement. You're trying to get the best deal. Like, what do you do? Well, there are over 40 companies on the Bloomberg tier one module list. And you're trying to cover as many of those as you can. But the only way to do it now is to pick up the phone or shoot an email to a contact you may or may not have. And if you're in that position, IPP, you know that that process is painful and that that exchange information is slow and usually incomplete. And so what we do in our platform, and you can see this even in the free version that's available, is we've gone and done that for basically the entire market. So we have over 30 module companies that are plugging into the platform and we have spent a tremendous amount of time and spent money and continue to invest in gathering data and maintaining data from those providers. So the module companies that participate in our platform represent over 90% of the U.S. crystalline module supply. And from those suppliers, we get twice monthly product price and availability updates 
And then we maintain a very comprehensive data set about their products, their company, and their counterparty contracts. And we make all of that data available to our customers and subscribers. So just you can imagine, you can go into the platform, you can put in some basic information about your project, and you can instantly see tens of different module options and compare them in a really comprehensive way. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to take this market right now, which is really opaque to both the buyers and sellers and make it much more transparent so that better decisions can be made with more confidence, you know, yielding more outcomes. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's a great description of the platform. Simply, if people wanted to try the free version of the platform, how can they sign up? Yeah, they can just go to anzarenewables.com and I think in the upper right of the site, there's a button and you put in some basic information and you request a login. And if you're working for a company that's in the industry, that's in the development, or if you're a developer, an EPC or an owner, then we'll give you a seat really quick and you go around and play with it and you can get a lot of information right away through the platform. And then when you want to get to that next level, when you want to really dial in the options for your project, but also see that next level of data, that's where you're going to want to actually talk to us and explore what it's like to engage with us and be a subscriber and a partner, because there's a whole level of data that our customers get that you can't just get when you go into the app. Yeah. And we'll have that on the notes of the podcast. So it'll be easier for people to just click on the link. And that's great that you're offering a free service so people can understand like the value and the benefits that the platform's offering before actually speaking to someone directly. Yeah. I was just going to say like one thing that you'll see when you go in there, if you just play around the app is something that we're doing that is enabled by the technology investments we've made that we don't see anybody else doing is we're allowing the customers to compare the products, not just based on price, but actually based on total financial value. We developed this metric called effective dollar per watt that allows buyers, procurement teams to compare. Yes, they compare on price, but we also show them what the lifetime differences are in energy production and what that means financially in today dollars. And then also we've developed, because we came out of an EPC business, we developed a really comprehensive EPC pricing engine so that you can compare the estimated cost to install for different products. And so we can bring together the price of the product, the differences in energy production, and the differences in expected EPC costs. And we wrap that all into this effective dollar per watt number. And we think this is potentially transformative for the industry. We hope the whole industry moves towards thinking about product choices, not just in terms of price, but in terms of total value, because that's one of the mistakes that we see companies making all the time. Yeah, that is a huge, to me, it's a great way of really comparing the EPC cost and then obviously production and wrapping everything together, right? Because once you take the different pieces together, it could be different costing and there could be a better configuration. I mean, I think that's a huge value into the industry. I know you were telling me about it in the pre-interview, and I was kind of blown away by that concept because I think you're adding a lot of value with the platform with having that there. I think you used an example, too, about like potentially like how much savings it could be for a project. And I remember it being like 
a very large amount. So I think it's game changing what you're doing with that, not just obviously the platform, but creating this calculation, which I feel like you're a lot more sophisticated with your EPC O&M background to be able to do that and offer that value to your customers. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And it is interesting to us. Six, seven years ago, we were doing the same thing for our own business. We were buying based on price. And around then, we started to realize that, especially as the module form factors started to get larger, and we started to see that there were significant differences in installation costs. Back then, it was mostly based on form factor. But we started to realize that we weren't seeing the whole picture when we just bought based on price. And so at Borrego, we started to develop these tools to compare these products holistically, including energy production differences and EPC costs. And so these tools that we have at Anza that now we've spent a lot of money to be able to put them into the platform and make them available through the cloud, they were really tools that we were using internally at Borrego to increase our own project profits as a developer. So I'm really surprised today when I go talk to even really large IPPs who are buying hundreds of megawatts per year they don't have a great way to compare products based on total value. Just like a basic question of how much more should I pay for a Topcon module? They don't usually have a clean answer. And that answer is actually highly dependent on the details of their project. And so that's what we enable them to see that on utility scale projects, it can mean tens of millions. On big DG portfolios, it can be millions. I'm surprised that I've been part of that process and sometimes how like unsophisticated, like basically you're talking about, you know, creativity and financial efficiency and things that, you know, I think the industry's just grown so fast and there's just so many ways that there could be value added that haven't been incorporated by mainstream players, as you said, and how people have been able to take advantage like you have, you know, when you're at Borrego and obviously now with Anza. So that's pretty interesting. And I appreciate you explaining like the differential potentially, because I think that gives people a better idea of what the Delta is, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't think it's because the procurement teams aren't sophisticated. It's just that it takes, you need a lot of data and you need some technology to be able to make the process fast and easy. Otherwise, it's so time consuming to do these calculations manually that it's really not practical. So I don't think it's because the buyers don't want to or the procurement teams aren't sophisticated enough. In theory, it's that they're not empowered with the right tools. And that's what we're trying to do is give them those tools. That's a great point because you're right. I think they do see it. But as you mentioned before, it's so difficult to get that information and you're creating the tools to be able to do that. So that's amazing value to the customer. And I know you mentioned like you're not a broker. I'm sure people are thinking, listening to the interview, like, how does Anza get compensated to use the platform? So there's a free version, which you can get, you can play around with it. You can see how it works. You can see the effective dollar per watt. You can see kind of the breadth of options. But when you really want to do a procurement, there's going to be another level of data and also another level of pricing that you're going to want to see. You're going to want to see you know, project-specific pricing, and you're going to want to see data on real market bid asks and the next level of technical data so that you can filter the products to really meet your project-specific requirements, like what structural requirements do you have in the module? Do you have hail requirements? Which tracker are you going to use? What's the tracker compatibility? And that's when customers typically engage with us. And so we 
are more and more historically, we have worked on a just a transaction level with customers helping to facilitate transactions. Now we're working on more an engagement level where we're engaged for either all the annual volume or a certain subset of projects. And then the way we get paid is when the order is made and then when the order is delivery starts, we take a small fee. It's a fixed per watt fee on the total volume of the transactions. That fee steps down as volume increases. So it's <laughs> I'm not going to get into pricing on the platform, but it's relatively small piece of the total procurement and very easy for us to quantify the benefit and huge multiple of what our fee is. Yeah, for sure. That's great to know. And that I'm sure you're adding such a large amount of value to what you're actually charging that it makes it an easy decision for the customer to use the platform. So I appreciate you explaining that. And can you talk about, Mike, how your business has changed with the Inflation Reduction Act? Obviously, it's been, I guess, a little past the year anniversary. I think one of the big things is like domestic content. And I think people are probably, IPPs are probably trying to buy as much domestic content as possible to get the step up with the investment tax credit or ITC. Can you talk about how that has maybe impacted your business going forward? It's a huge issue. I would say the IRA and domestic content falls into this bucket of issues, which are how do we respond to wanting more and more data about the supply chain in order to be able to respond to policy and regulation. So in the case of domestic content, most of our customers are asking, and what are my domestic content options? And what are they going to be over time? And how are those likely to change in the future? And so that is a place where we can add value because we are gathering data from more than 90% of the U.S. crystalline module supply. And we do have data and information about what domestic content options they have available now and what domestic content options they say are going to be available in the future and when. And so we are helping our customers navigate those options. And we can also help them value what that might be worth because on the face, it might seem like it's a no-brainer to take the domestic content if you can get it. But there's a question of who's going to capture that additional value that's generated by the ITC adder. Because if there's limited domestic content, which is going to be the case for at least the next couple of years, then the module maker is going to take a significant portion of that value. They're going to charge more for that product. Domestic content is going to come with a premium. And so there's a break-even point at which premium is too high where it's not worth it, either because it's not worth the risk that this product's going to come on time or it's just financially not worth it. And so we help our customers navigate that. We can bring forward, hey, these are all the options that we think will be available for any period of time. And this is the pricing intelligence we have on those options. And how does that compare to the financial gain you get from getting that ITC adder? I mean, I think just broad brushstrokes, there's very limited domestic content available right now in the market that's going to qualify for the ITC adder. There's more coming in 25, but we still don't see sufficient domestic content on track even for 2025 to meet the demand in the market. And because of that, we do think that most of the value premium will accrue to the module makers, the OEMs, and not to the customers. That doesn't mean there can't be value there for the customers, but we don't see even in 2025 customers able to capture the full value of that ITC adder. Yeah, that's interesting insight. And, you know, that leads to another question is like, how far normally are you able to help your customers make procurement decisions? Because everything 
as you talked about earlier, the solar coaster, right? Everyone wants to lock in prices as far as possible. And obviously there's a risk to that. Then there's also could be a premium related to that. And I'm sure, you know, that's something that you've dealt with your right. customers, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. So we help customers understand what their options are and what lead time is today. So if you're buying for DG project portfolio in the tens of megawatts, a year ago, lead times were quite long. You wanted to secure your modules three or four quarters in advance. Flash forward to today, lead times are very short. You can buy maybe as short as one quarter in advance. I mean, that's pretty tight, but you might be able to do it. There's significant inventory in the market. So what you said is exactly right, which is there's often a desire to lock in supply and lock in pricing, but that comes with risk. I mean, by locking in, you're placing a bet. You're placing a bet that technology and pricing and availability are not going to improve in the future. And there have definitely been times over the course of the last decade where that has been true. Last year, with availability low and pricing high was an example. This year, it's the opposite. So companies who bought four quarters in advance and maybe bought out all of their needs, you know, right now, they're probably underwater on those transactions because pricing has come down you know, more than 30% this year. So, and Popcon is widely available, whereas if you purchased a year ago, you were most likely purchasing Monoperk. So customers have to decide on what their risk profile is and what bets they want to make, and we can only advise them on the options. But I generally do try and counsel the large customers away from doing really large long-term procurements for multiple projects. Because it's such a big bet against pricing coming down and technology getting better. And also, especially when you're buying for multiple projects, we see over and over again that timing that you expect when you think you're going to need that product changes. Development timelines, they always change and they usually only go one way. They usually go longer. And so we usually try and advise our customers to break those big procurements down into smaller ones to mitigate some of those problems. Yeah, that's interesting. And you make a great point about, and I've seen this as well, how, you know, people have went underwater with locking and pricing and because of technology uh, efficiencies, right? And pricing going down, you know, they've lost a lot of margin that they could have had. I'm wondering, do you help with like, if your clients are looking to store panels? I know like there's just store panels in some sort of warehouse before the actual construction is, that's more logistics, right? That's not really... But we do it. Yeah. So we actually have a logistics offering and we help customers with, we can do freight transport from port to a warehouse. We don't own warehouses, but we have a third party warehouse network across the country. And so we can store the modules. We can break module shipments up into smaller chunks and ship to multiple locations. And we can manage all that for the customer from sourcing the the freight to expediting the freight to storing the modules and become pretty good at it because we're managing deliveries from so many different vendors for so many different customers that for many customers, they might choose to have us do some of the scope that they would either do themselves or that the module company would do. That's interesting. I think that's great for customers or potential customers to know as well, because it's a lot easier to work with the same company on the procurement and logistics than going through two separate companies. So that's great. Great to know. It sounds like you don't go through distributors. You're going directly through the manufacturers, right? Yeah, we're going directly to the manufacturers. We're not working with distributors at all. We're generally not competing with distributors either because usually our customers are 
larger scale than the distributors are serving. And once you get over 10, 15 megawatts, we're also not standing between the customer and the OEM, the module vendor on the contract side. We're helping put the customer in direct contract with the vendor. We're a technology, we're a data, and we're a service to help the customer get to the best product, the best counterparty, and the best contract terms. But we don't stand in between. We don't need to do that. That's great. And that's a huge value. And that's as well, like having the contract terms there, like having all that information will help, you know, quicken the decision process between both parties and then you allowing them to work directly with each other, I think, as well. That kind of standing in between, I think, makes transactions go faster. So that's great that you're doing that. I think like for procurement teams, I try and tell them, like, imagine if instead of doing it the old way, before you even down select to a short list, you could see what every company in the market was offering in terms of upfront deposits and how they were doing serial defects and how they were allocating risk on trade and detainment and how differences in warranty terms. If you could see all that information before you even had to shortlist, how powerful would that be? That's what we do is we bring that all up front in a structured way so that you can do a much more detailed compare and contrast before you start investing tens of hours and tens of thousands of dollars in legal and a contract negotiation. You can understand like what's best in market, what's middle of the market, and what's lagging market on all these really critical contract issues. Yeah, that's a huge value to the customers. And then it's you're simplifying the process than what it was done before. So that's great to hear. And going to something that we talked about in the pre-interview, you know, everyone's also focused on traceability. Specifically, you know, you can't get raw materials from the Uyghur area in China, and people are concerned about like what happens at the port and what will customs look for traceability. Can you talk about how your platform's handling like traceability? I know that's like a very big concern with customers making buying decisions. So what we can do with our data is we can generally with UFLPA or forced labor risk, what we've done is we have established an objective a three-tier risk categorization. So we move the manufacturers into one of three tiers based on where their polysilicon is coming from, based on past attainments, based on what traceability they're willing to sign up for in their contracts. And so we can share with our customers where different module vendors and products are in those three tiers, and then also the underlying data that got them there. So that's what we do. We also are, just because we're out in the market at any given point in time, helping tens of different companies procure and working with you know more than 90% of the U.S. crystalline supply, we generally have data and intelligence about who's been detained and who's been able to get through detainment. We can bring all that up front and up to the customer up front in the process and share that. It's a pretty dynamic situation, the reality of it. And there are new companies being exposed to detainment and new companies getting through detainment, you know, on a monthly basis. And so we're trying to keep our customers up to date on the latest. And yeah, I would just say generally, yeah, it's a big issue and you really want to think through it. There are very few options that have zero risk. There are very few options today that have zero risk. I think that's the reality. So yeah, that's great perspective that, you know, you mentioned, obviously, there's not enough domestic content at this point. There are very few options 
related to traceability. And it's interesting that you have sort of like information based on all the transactions that you're working on or hearing from customers. So you have a better idea of what has a higher probability of, you know, getting through customs, which is huge, I think, in the market. I don't think a lot of people have that intel. You know, they're trying to get it through like one-off conversations and emails and I heard this rumor and innuendo and all that other stuff. Yeah, we're trying to, as much as possible, bring objectivity to it. But it's a challenge, for sure. Oh, sure. I can't even imagine how challenging that is. And I thought it was interesting, too, that you've done 50-plus energy storage projects on the platform. Can you talk about maybe trends that you're seeing in energy storage based on obviously advising your customers on you know purchase of energy storage and potentially too i'm curious like what technologies obviously everyone knows lithium ion as you know the most i guess commercial or financeable technology but i'm curious to see too if you've seen other technologies outside of that and then are you seeing mostly utility scale storage standalone or solar plus storage I know, obviously, with the IRA and standalone storage being part of the ITC, that you're probably going to change and just solar plus storage and behind the meter, commercial, industrial and residential. But I know that's like a lot of different questions that I ask. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, just let's talk about storage. So I guess the biggest thing that's changed in storage over the last year is pricing has come down and availability has gone up. So it's similar trend to what we've seen on the solar side in that area. Um, you asked about technology. We've looked at different technologies, but every single one of our customers and every single project that we're working on is still, maybe with one exception, is focused on lithium ion. It is still the dominant technology. So that really hasn't changed in I don't have data on it, but my feeling is only that it's become more dominant and more entrenched as opposed to the opposite. We see more variation both in architecture and vendors who are trying to sell into the market. There's more and more providers on the architecture side. Go back a few years, we saw almost all the projects using fully integrated, you know, AC block, you know, from somebody like Tesla or Fluence or Witzilia. And now there are more companies providing AC blocks. We see that a lot of the solar providers have gotten in there and grabbed some market share. But we also have some of the DC, the sorry, the storage cell and module makers introducing products into the market, typically a DC block product where some help. And this is one of the things that we help customers do. Customers can really cost effectively do self-integration and have an alternative to you know, the fully integrated product. So there's positive and negatives of those different architectures. And that's one of the things we help our customers navigate is, do you want to get like a much more complete turnkey experience from one of these providers? Or are you willing to do more like what you do on the solar side, which is buy a few pieces and bring them together? So those are some of the things we're seeing. A lot of the things that we work on for customers, we do similar to the solar side. A lot of what we do in storage is aggregating data on product price and availability and then technical diligence data, which is a bigger lift on the storage side, the technical diligence of the storage product. It's a more complicated product than the solar module, and you have much bigger safety concerns <laughs> than you do on the solar module side. So that's a lot of what we're doing is pre-diligencing the products, bringing that data 
to the front of the procurement process for our customers. Yeah, that's really helpful to understand. And do you think you'll keep seeing over the next two to three years, the cost of lithium ion batteries continuing to decrease like we've seen in solar and the capacity increasing over time? The second one's easier. The capacity is definitely going to increase. And we're also going to start to get some domestic capacity too. I still think like solar, there won't be enough for at least the next few years, but we'll start to see some. And there's a tax credit adder for that. I don't like to forecast pricing because I think (laughs) forecasts are always wrong. But I guess just intuitively, it feels like given how volume are exploding, that prices would continue to come down, manufacturing, learning economies of scale. I have much less intuition about the commodities, lithium carbide pricing and how where that's going to go. It's kind of outside of my area of expertise, but just broadly, just seeing this explosion in capacity, more driven by EVs than stationary, although stationary is ramping, obviously. And it just feels just intuitively like that, like every other industry that scales, every other product that scales, that you'll see pricing come down as companies get better and better at making this stuff. Oh, for sure. I mean, basically supply and demand with economics and how much supply you would think the price would go down. Yeah, I mean, when I started in solar modules, I think we're like $3.20 per watt. They eventually went up because of shortages in polysilicon to over $4. And now their pricing's all over the place, but call them in the 30 cents range, <laughs> you know, low 30s and even lower <laughs> if you're at scale. And I mean, there's even residential product because there's excess residential product in the market even lower. And so you're talking about a 90% price reduction. So I don't know if we'll see that same magnitude of price reduction in storage, but for prices to come down, that'd be where if I had to bet, that's where I'd bet. Well, that's really the solar story, right? How much pricing has gone down in the capacity of the panels, which I guess they use the term Swanson's law, which is similar uh-huh. in computing. Yeah, right. You know, solar is a technology, right? So, and it's the cheapest form of energy. That's interesting to hear kind of what you're talking about with storage. And, you know, it could be similar, but obviously it could be different as well. And it's a lot more complicated, right? Than a panel versus a lithium ion battery is a lot more complicated, as you said. Yeah, it is more complicated. And you also have to think about the difference between the battery and the system. And as you know, these safety concerns become top of mind, you know, are there things that have to be done at the system level that add cost? I still think the cost comes down, but you know, there are some headwinds. Yeah. You know, everyone also talks about software when it comes to energy storage and maximizing, obviously the different revenue sources for the battery and when it discharges and time of use. Do you help customers with helping find the right software solution or does the battery usually come with like a software solution with it? We do help on the software side. I would say like revenue optimization is not something our customers are typically asking us to help with. Usually that's part of their core competence. You know, as a developer or a long-term owner, they have some view on how they're going to generate the revenue and they're planning to do it, you know, by controlling the battery themselves or they have plan for a software product to control it. We can help with that. We have, a, I think, a pretty good idea of who's out in the market and has what, but that's not something they're typically asking us to do. On the software side, where we do help is if we have customers who want to purchase, go the DC block architecture route, like buy a product from, instead of from a Fluence or Tesla, buying from a CATL or a BYD or a Goshen, that is a DC block. And so they're also going to need to buy a PCS. They're going to then need an EMS system to manage the whole system. So we do help connect them and even contract with the EMS provider 
And then we help bring the PCS, the EMS, and the DC block together, even helping them in the field when it comes down to commissioning time. That's a great benefit. And I appreciate you explaining, you know, helping with EMS. And obviously, the developer should, in their core competency, if they're doing the revenue, to figure out how to maximize that through whatever solution that they're using. So, but that you're also potentially could help them with your knowledge of the software. So I think that's a great value add for sure. And just kind of changing topics. I know you've been now in the solar industry for over 20 years and maybe dog years, it's like 150, 200 years. <laughs> uh, solar 2.0, I don't know what you want to call solar now. 3.0, 4.0, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but what trends, I mean, do you think we'll see maybe that haven't been talked about? I don't know if you have anything. I know like this is not something prepared, but. Yeah, I guess a few things that I see at a macro level. One is just thinking about constraints and problems we need to solve as an industry. So it was great that we got the IRA and that gave us this long-term support, financial support for the industry. But I think it also exposed other problems we have and other choke points and our ability to deploy more and more solar and storage. Interconnection <laughs> maybe being the biggest one. It's, I think, as an industry in collaboration with the regulators, both the federal regulators and the ISOs and the utilities and, you know, potentially policymakers, we need to do more to solve that problem. I think there are legacy issues and issues with the utility construct that's making that process more painful and longer than it needs to be. And that actually is as much as anything else, throttling our ability to deploy more and more renewable energy. So that's a big issue. It's also exposed other supply chain issues that aren't modules and batteries. If you talk to you know, utility scale IPPs now, they're probably a lot more worried about switch gear than they are about their modules because switch gear timelines are over a year. So those are some issues. I think trends, we are going to see a lot more domestic manufacturing, domestic content. It's going to take a little while. And I think that the rapid price declines we've had over the last year and also much higher interest rates probably aren't helping. But I do believe that eventually domestic manufacturing overcomes that and 10 years from now, we will see a lot more domestic capacity. So I think those things are all true. I think those are some of the things that we see. I had more time to think about maybe I come up with a few more. <laughs> I mean, those are great insights. And I think it's very helpful to our audience. The Solar Maverick podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. It would be great if you could provide any advice of starting a company. Now, it seems like this is the third company or it could be more, right? I'm thinking about the EPC, O&M, and then obviously supply chain. Like what advice would you have for someone who's an entrepreneur or wanting to start a business within the solar industry? Right, yeah, lots of advice. How do you get it all into like a 30 second soundbite? <laughs> yeah, saying one because probably yeah. in hours about this topic. Yeah, I mean, I think for one is definitely do your homework. I try and understand the space and the niche and the part of the industry that you're trying to build the business in. like, And if you talk to venture capitalists, they tell you the same thing. The domain expertise is as great an asset as there is. So take the time to understand what you're getting into. As somebody who started a lot of businesses and as many times, you know, stays up thinking about some new cool business idea, I've learned to talk myself out of most of those. If you're really at the very startup stage, I advise you like there's more good ideas than any 
single person or company assigned to chase. One of my favorite quotes is that companies rarely die of starvation. They usually die of indigestion. So if you've got a new company and you're in the renewable energy industry, you're probably seeing opportunities to do new things or get into new markets or launch a new product weekly, at least, if not daily. And obviously you want to be responsive to changes and things that you learn. But if you're constantly chasing a new shiny object, it's really hard to get anything done. So the ability to like filter out the attraction, the sirens calls of all the cool things you can do to focus on the thing that you decided was most important in the beginning is a really important skill. Yeah. I mean, I love to talk about entrepreneurship and leadership and management. It's something that I've really enjoyed studying since I got into business. But yeah, those are some of the things I think solar entrepreneurs should think about. That's great advice. And I appreciate you imparting your wisdom from many years of experience. This has been an amazing interview, Mike. I appreciate you making time on the Solar Maverick podcast. If our audience, who we call Mavericks, learning more about Anza Renewables or yourself, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, anzarenewables.com is the website. You can connect with me over LinkedIn. You can get in touch with our team through the website and you can definitely get a login to the app through the website. So it's pretty easy to get a hold of us electronically. You know, I'm frequently on LinkedIn. And so if there's something specific you want to connect about, feel free to reach out. That sounds great, Mike. I appreciate you making the time. We'll have that on the notes of the podcast. And this has been an amazing interview. And I think our listeners will learn a lot. And congrats on Anza. And I'm excited to see what happens with the future because I think you're really adding true value to the industry and innovating the procurement process going forward. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's fun. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U-Energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 